Hello and welcome to Today in Space. I am your space science podcast host from the East Coast, Alex Giorfanos, and it is good to be back in Boston. Uh, this is after a week of traveling to Florida in the hopes of seeing Artemis 1 launch and capturing that, and we were met with two scrubs. And look, the reality is that's frustrating, right? It sucks! It It's... Ah! But that's that's the human side of me. That that's the I wanted to see a rocket launch. I spent a week. I took time off work. I scheduled this all the way back in April when when this mission was supposed to start. So there is definitely a feeling of frustration, and I'm certainly not the only one. There's people that drove uh, many many hours, like the people that I met uh, for the both attempts. It's very frustrating, but but I'm here to help align our uh, expectations, and I even looked back at the last episode after the first scrub and the episode leading before that, and if you were listening, I even warned myself, scrubs were going to happen. At the very least, you had to expect that they could happen, and I was in really good spirits after the first episode. Episode 281 was the episode we had right after the first scrub, where we were talking about Engine 3 and the issues they were having getting that engine cool enough so that they'd be able to light it. And then Artemis 1 attempt 2 got scrubbed in the fueling process. Again, a liquid hydrogen leak, a different leak this time, this one on the mobile launcher and the ground side of things. And what I wanted to do was reiterate the thing that I've been saying in the last two episodes, because unfortunately it can't be said enough. Scrubs are going to happen even more with a new rocket, and that is exactly what the space launch system is. It may have been in development. It may have first planned to have launched in 2016. Uh, the bill that put the money and the resources together to make SLS may have been the 2010 authorization bill. It may even have the space shuttle engines, but that does not make it, just because it's NASA's rocket and NASA engineers designed it, that doesn't make it a perfect rocket. That doesn't mean that a rocket is going to go from the design to the launch pad with no issues. I am definitely going to be here to keep beating that drum of it's a new rocket, they need to learn the rocket, but it's certainly not the thing that anyone wants to hear especially with NASA, and that's kind of where we'll go with this episode, is is what are the challenges that NASA has that they're dealing with? We're going to talk about, about a lot about liquid hydrogen and the issues that the space shuttle had historically with liquid hydrogen, so unfortunately, it's not a new problem that they're dealing with. In fact, it's a problem that's been in the history of rocket science for a very, very long time. But we're also going to talk about you know, we talked about last episode the balance between SpaceX's Falcon 9, a rocket that they've flown over, you know, hun- you know over 100 times. They've recovered it over 151 times now after the third launch that happened from SpaceX, after the Artemis 1 mission uh, actually went to the pad in the hopes of launching for the first time. So obviously their rocket has flown many, many times, and they know that rocket. But they struggled with things, too. And that's, that's where we're going to bring things. One way you can support us at manscaped.com. Use the code word SPACE. Get 20% off anything on uh, the website. You can get free worldwide shipping, whether it's the Lawnmower 4.0, the Weed Whacker, uh, or any of the products that can help you with your men's health and your, and your grooming. Manscaping is there to uh, to help you out. I'm seriously enjoying it. Again, I was <laughs> extremely excited that uh, the Lawnmower 4.0 charged wirelessly, capacitively, uh, because I was an idiot and forgot the stand uh, at home. I had the cord with me, and then I realized there's nothing to plug in, and that, duh, that stand is what charges it. Uh, but luckily, you can charge that thing on any wireless charger, it seems, supposedly. Uh, at least I got lucky. So... The only reason that was possible was because they have made this product better over time. You know, I was a I was a Manscaped um, customer a long time ago. I think I have the Lawnmower 3.0. It uh, does not have the LED light like it does on here. It it plugged in 
uh, to charge, which of course was always a challenge because I felt like I was always looking for the charging cord. But with the stand, it's something you could have set out on your your bathroom table, wherever it is that you do your manscaping. And of course, they also have things like the newspaper uh, that you can put out and catch everything. You know, as as a guy, I think a lot of us are are not prone to staying uh, that clean and that, you know, if it's complicated, you're just not going to do it, right? Uh, so there is simplicity in what they found. You know, manscaping, <laughs> manscaping is not hard. You just have to make it simple, and Manscaped helps make it simple. Uh, cleanup is a lot simpler. You can manscape wherever it is because uh, you can bring that into the shower, um, and and use it there. You can use it outside the bed, wherever it is. You've got to use Manscaped. Uh, they have tools to help you uh, take care of everything, uh, including your family jewels. And we're very happy to have them as a sponsor. Again, code word space to get twenty percent off on worldwide shipping, uh, free worldwide shipping. Uh, that's how you support the podcast. Thank you again, Manscaped, for being a sponsor. My trip to Florida. So many of you have reached out and and said sorry or. You know, uh, <laughs> tried to tried to give me some uh, some hope, and like I said, it's frustrating. But 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 but, uh, that was that was probably going to happen. And and I went to Florida not in the hopes of necessarily, and this this was good expectations on my part. In retrospect, I didn't go to Florida expecting to see Artemis One fly. In fact, I had it closer to like a 75% chance of not seeing it fly. Uh, but at the very least, I had hoped we would have gotten further down the countdown clock. Now, we did get to minus T minus 40 minutes, uh, which is which is farther than it ever has happened. So that was Monday's attempt. Oh, we got to that point. And then Saturday, it got scrubbed during the fueling. So, uh, you know, a lot of this was really frustrating and to see an old problem crop up, uh, we even had the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, in response to Eric Berger's question about, you know, if liquid hydrogen has been historically leaky, especially with the space shuttle, was that taken into account in that 2010 authorization bill? And, uh, you know, the administrator basically said we deferred to the experts who said it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a... <laughs> That's kind of placing blame on somebody else. Um, you know, it's there. You know, they, yes, they're the experts, but it was NASA's decision. You know, but all of that aside, uh, liquid hydrogen is is actually a really efficient fuel for space because hydrogen is such a, is literally the smallest atom that we're aware of. That means in a liquid state, you can put a ton of fuel. That's the advantage, right? You can have so much fuel, and you're able to do more with missions if if you're able to load the cryogenically cooled liquid hydrogen. And you know what? Let's let's dive into that right now. Let's talk about why hydrogen has been historically problematic. Uh, Jim Free mentioned in one of those broadcasts, I think the last one, uh, I think it was later on that Saturday, around 4.30 p.m., he mentioned about the summer of hydrogen in 1990. Now, I was born in January of 1990, so I have no recollection of this, uh, unfortunately. So I had to go do some research, and uh, I actually came across this uh, NASA technical report server uh, called the Summer of Hydrogen. And this is actually, uh, this was in the publication Ask Magazine. The author is uh, Philip Weber, who was working on the space shuttle and so this is a public works use document uh i can share this with you guys here but i wanted to read this little uh snippet from here and then one thing at the very end where he he basically talks about the issues they had and what they did to solve the liquid hydrogen issue for the space shuttle and why this summer of hydrogen was such a problem so i'm i'm gonna start reading that here and we'll uh we'll show you some Beautiful images of uh, the space shuttle as we do it, and the engine. Summer of Hydrogen by Philip Weber. This is uh, in 2008 that this was posted. Ground crew veterans at Kennedy Space Center still talk about what they call the Summer of Hydrogen, the long, frustrating months in 1990 when the shuttle fleet was grounded 
by an elusive hydrogen leak that foiled our efforts to fill the orbiter's external fuel tank. Columbia, STS-35, was on launch pad A for a scheduled May 30th launch when we discovered the hydrogen leak during tanking. The external fuel tank is loaded through the orbiter. Liquid hydrogen flows through a 17-inch umbilical between the orbiter and the tank. During fueling, we purge the aft fuselage with gaseous nitrogen to reduce the risk of fire. We have a leak detection system in the mobile launch platform, which samples via Tigon tubing the atmosphere in and around the vehicle, drawing it down to a mass spectrometer that analyzes its composition. When we progress to the stage of tanking where liquid nitrogen flows through the vehicle and the concentration lost my spot here, of hydrogen approached 4%, the limit above which it would be dangerously flammable, we had a leak. And just to jump out of this real quick, flaming hydrogen doesn't have any visible flames. So that's one of the biggest, when, when this was scrubbed, when this leak did happen, if you're wondering why it's so dangerous, it's because there could be a fire and you would have no idea. And it's extremely flammable. So you'd have to have thermal cameras to even see, which I'm sure they did. But that's the, the challenge we have here. We did everything we could think of, back to the summer of hydrogen. We did everything we could think of to find it. And the contractor who supplied the flight hardware was there every day working alongside us. We did tagging tests, which involved instrumenting the suspected leak sources and cryo-loaded the external tank to try to isolate, isolate precisely where the leak originated. We switched out umbilicals. We replaced the seals between the umbilical and the orbiter. We inspected the seals microscopically and found no flaws. We replaced the recirculation pumps and we found and replaced a damaged Teflon seal in a main propulsion system detent cover, which holds the pre-valve, the main valve supplying hydrogen to the Space Shuttle Main Engine 3, in the open position. The seal passed leak tests at ambient temperature, but leaked when cryogenic temperatures were applied, the same thing that happened with SLS. We added new leak sensors up to 20 at a time and tried to be methodical in our placements to narrow down the possible sources of the problem. We even switched orbiters, sending Columbia back to the Vehicle Assembly Building and bringing out Atlantis, scheduled to fly as STS-38. Two shuttles on their mobile launchers passing in the night was a majestic sight, but, no, but not one you want to see if you're trying to get an orbiter launched. None of this told us where the leak was or if we were dealing with more than one leak source. So this liquid hydrogen problem was a problem historically with the Space Shuttle RS-25 engines. Great engines. They were able to perform extremely well. They're still useful today, right? They're, they're even uh, performing these once they're able to fire these engines. They're actually the performance of these engines are much higher than they were when they first launched, over 100% at this point. So they're, they're great engines. The fuel is very efficient. Obviously, the, the benefit of the exhaust of that being water, H2O, as it burns, is pretty amazing. But one of the things that I want to add, there's a, there's a quick quote here. I don't want to do the whole thing because you should go and read this. But on page 6, just to give you an idea... This plagued them for so long, yeah, in the whole summer. And there's a quote here that says, One member of the ground crew even volunteered to sit in the aft fuselage during fueling, wearing an oxygen supply. He would carry a sensor around with him until he found the leak. It's no surprise that the proposal vetoed uh, was vetoed on... Uh, on safety grounds, but he was ready to do it. That's how frustrated and determined we were. So it, it gives you just this whole idea of, of what Philip Weber and all of these people at Kennedy Space Center had to deal with and the grounds crew and, and the engineers. And, you know, this is arguably one of those things that made the shuttle such an event for uh, media vitriol and under misunderstanding and and just a, like an overall feeling of do they know what's going on and this fuel while being extremely efficient is clearly very difficult to deal with you know we, we're seeing the same issues come back again 
I'll read this last part here just to close out a little bit of this information here. Uh, this is at the end of the article here. So, but we had the seal passed all it, uh, but how did, sorry, but how had the seal passed all its tests at the contractor? Because that, by all means, it's, it's working well, right? Why didn't they see the leak then in testing? Since they were working so closely with us, they were able to supply the answers as soon as we understood the problem. They had tested the seals with liquid nitrogen, not liquid hydrogen. They had a good reason for that choice. Their facility in Downey, once fairly isolated, had seen Los Angeles grow around it. With schools and offices nearby, testing with hydrogen had become too dangerous. Liquid nitrogen was the safe alternative, because it won't catch fire. And they're also using this to purge those lines, right? But liquid hydrogen at about negative 253 degrees C is much cooler than liquid hydrogen, which liquefies at negative 196 degrees C. And also, hydrogen atoms are many times smaller than nitrogen atoms. So the seal worked fine with liquid nitrogen, but liquid hydrogen created gaps it could slip through. Hydrogen atoms are so small, they could even escape through a weld, which is, which is crazy. I didn't even know that. The lessons we took from this experience, in addition to seeing the persistence and dedication eventually pay off, are these. Don't take anything for granted. Stay in cons constant communication with the hardware manufacturer and test as you fly. On October 6, 1990, Discovery took off from launch pad 39B, the first launch since April. Wow, so April to October. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, literally, that's literally the timeline that Artemis is looking at right now. We are facing the same problem. And then at that point, uh, other successful launches would occur in November and December. The summer of hydrogen was over. So this this brings up a really interesting a really interesting point that this whole episode will be will be around which is there are different ways of approaching the same problem. I've heard a lot this week about how space is hard. And I don't think that's the right way to put it because saying that space is hard almost implies that there's only certain people that can do space, that can that can make space work. And I don't think that's correct. I think people are a big part of it. You need to have the best and the brightest and the people that are willing to open their minds to solving problems and, and, and being stringent on making things happen. I think the proper way to say it is that space is complicated and, and complex. And that's why nobody does it. Like, look at, look at every other rocket that's ever actually made it to the point. Actually, no, every rocket is difficult. Every rocket is complex. And when you go from the drawing board to the pad, and even testing those engines leading up all to that point, it is such, I mean, look at a rocket engine. Look, just look at the RS-25s, and look at, look at this, <laughs> this crazy uh, uh, diagram of all the flow where they had the first issue with engine three. Let's look at the outside of something like, let's say, the first Raptor engine, right? The first Raptor engine for Starship. Look how, how complex and complicated it is. And look at Raptor engine two, where they've taken the complexity, they've learned the physics, and they've simplified it down. Look how much smaller it is. All of these things have to go into making a rocket launch successful. That That's why people say space is hard, is because it's complicated. But it's not that space is hard. It is that your approach also needs to match the complexity of the rocket itself. And what we've seen, this is the story I'm bringing back from Florida, is that space is complicated and you need the time and the reps to learn your rocket. SpaceX has done that better than any other company, especially in the reusability standpoint, right? The RS-25s from the space shuttle. Really the first real reusable spacecraft of its kind, right? Um, and that was a very complex machine to make routinely uh, reusable. And that was, that was the challenge of the shuttle is 
is if they had figured out and been able to have figured out that reusability factor and 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 turn around space shuttles uh, quicker, we we today may not even have just you know uh, Falcon Nine launching fuselage. We probably would have had space planes attached, just like the Dreamliner, uh, Dream Chaser, right from Sierra Nevada Space Company. Um, we 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 would have a totally different approach, but because it was so complicated, not hard, but complicated, the space shuttle never really reached that zenith of, zenith of reusability, and it ended up uh, just being too much to keep things going. Those engines are now on the space launch system, and the complexity of liquid hydrogen follow it, and so it's not that space. It's not that NASA's problem now moving forward is that the SLS or liquid hydrogen is too hard. It's that it's complicated. I mean, here, the summer of hydrogen, their best, what they came away with was that you need, it's extremely complicated to keep liquid hydrogen from leaking, right? They don't really have any solutions. The, the, The best solution that they had is make sure that the hardware manufacturer is, is next to you when you're doing this. And which which is a hard thing to do when you think that the space shuttles have basically been in a warehouse uh, over 11 years. Who knows how many people have retired, how much of that knowledge is still there and not just documents that some new person picks up and reads. Right. These are these are real problems that make space complicated, not hard, but complicated. The reason that the RS-25s are complicated right now is this liquid hydrogen problem is old and there is a new team dealing with those liquid hydrogen problems. Uh, And so NASA's team needs to really learn so much so quickly. And the last bullet point that we heard from from, uh, Philip Weber here is that you test as you fly. And, And we heard some of that from the team. And there is from the NASA team, the Artemis team, Jim Free mentioned it. I think uh, Mike Serafin mentioned it, and I believe also NASA Administrator Bill Nelson mentioned it. That you know they're going to keep going out there and test as they fly. But I think the problem with that approach is it's so understood inside their bubble, inside their team, that that's what they have to do. Right? This is an old thing that I think it's caught. It's caught most of us on the outside. You know, especially myself, who wasn't even born Uh, barely you know when it finally flew i was 10 months old right so this problem there's there's a lot of stuff that nasa's approach the way that they have they've approached bringing the country back to the moon and sending us back there is a a totally different mindset that you have trying to um recapture NASA's glory versus being a scrappy young space company like SpaceX trying to prove a point. There there are very different incentives behind both of those. So let's break that down a little bit more, right? So there are a lot of different ways to approach rocket technology and developing a rocket. SpaceX did it in a way that really uh, hasn't been done before, and and for NASA is really difficult for them to do in the configuration that they're in right now. Right, NASA is a glorious organization that has much, much history behind it, and a reputation to uphold. For SpaceX, when they first started, it was Elon Musk had just sold PayPal, dumping all of that money into this this effort. And on the third try for the Falcon 1, they finally got it to launch and they were able to successfully uh, get a payload to work. They had failed horrifically those first two times. And then after that, as they developed the Falcon 9 and the eventually landing rockets, they failed that entire time. And in such fantastic ways, I remember the early, early years, this is probably 2010, maybe 2009, where the Falcon 9 was being tested as, this is a really early, block one, I think, of the Falcon 9, where they had basically built a a, a rigid rig uh, as part of, like, the legs that now deploy beautifully by by themselves. But 
it was literally just a rigid structure. I think they called it the grasshopper at the time. And they were just bringing the rocket up, making it stable, and then getting it to come back down. And they they failed many times. I remember seeing uh, one of those rockets blew up midair, right? But they were willing to put in that time and put in the failures to make that happen. And it takes a lot of money. If if Elon Musk didn't have the money that he had, I don't think, you know, there there are there is a long list, a long history of billionaires, millionaires, I think millionaires for the most part, who sunk much of their fortune into a space company and it didn't work. And again, it's not that it was hard, it's that it's complicated. And it takes a person like an Elon Musk, who is at heart a physicist, who is at the ground floor working not only the design of the rocket, but the engines and the whole, the nitty-gritty and the big picture of the project. And and that has attracted some of the the most talented young engineers out there uh, who are are going through the gauntlet of becoming an aerospace engineer in the first place. SpaceX offers that that place for someone who is ready to have an entire career and they're ready to get after it and do amazing things. They can actually work on missions that fly, right? That's such a if you if you're not aware, going to school for aerospace engineering. Again, I I went from uh, 2008 to 2015. Yes, you could do the math there. Uh, this is why I podcast. <laughs> but um, this. This idea of being an aerospace engineer, especially post-space shuttle, the space industry didn't really move fast. And there's so many people that I've worked with that no longer, uh, I've worked with, I've talked with, I've met, who no longer work in the space industry because it just took so long. They, they may have worked five years at a company, probably a satellite company, and they never saw anything they worked on fly. They were, it was, it's a, it's a lot of complicated work and there isn't necessarily the joy of seeing something that you've helped build, design, make, launch, send things to space, transform the space industry from what it is to what it could be in the future. That's the incentive behind SpaceX. And there's a lot of advantages to that in that you're able to, as this last point for the liquid hydrogen you get to test as you fly. That bullet point is probably the most important thing here for talking about how you get from space being complicated to space being regular and routine. You have to fly as much as possible so that you can test. And as far as incentives go for NASA, that is not their incentive. And and I I really harp on this because it's something that I did coming out of school, learning aerospace engineering, probably learning from a lot of the people who have the same mindset in the space industry, which is that, you know, I get very irritated about things like flight heritage, because what that term was used for, which is like, if something's flown before in space, it's more reliable, because we know it's flown up there. That's a great concept. And that's, that's definitely ideal. But that also was an excuse to not put the money into investing in anything new, right? It prevented us from seeing a company like SpaceX and accepting that, hey, if they get this right, if they're able to figure this out, it could be really good. Uh, Hydrogen, right? Really efficient fuel source, but has its clear problems. If you don't have that mindset outside of flight heritage, you're going to keep using liquid hydrogen because that's what you use. And that's where we've ended up here with what SLS has become. It took the old flight. I basically said, we're retiring the space shuttle, but we want to keep a bunch of jobs. We want to make sure that the people that have gotten us to this point can still have a future. And we're going to add those space shuttle engines to this new rocket that we're going to do. And, you know, in some ways, that's very honorable. It's very loyal. But is that the right approach for rockets and sending them into space and and making an efficient new forward-looking nasa has a lot from an incentive perspective that limits thinking outside the box now this is i i have thought a lot about how i was going to say this and to also give 
respect to the new Artemis One team that is doing the best with what they have, right? They, they there's there isn't the option. This is the rocket that they have, and it it could be a marvelous rocket. And when it flies, it could be the world's most powerful rocket uh, that's ever been built. And it's not that it's a bad rocket by any... We don't know. It hasn't flown yet, right? So so all of this that I'm saying is critiquing this idea that there is more than one way to approach space because it's not just that space is hard. It's that space is complex. And just like any scientific problem or engineering problem, there are multiple ways to go about it. The question is, do you want to carry the old way of doing things and and try and figure that out and and do what's proven to be right or go about it another way and think about it from a whole new perspective from a different uh first principles approach which SpaceX is great at doing and think about how do we make this work and for NASA there, there are very heavy theory physics. We understand what hydrogen is possible of doing. We know that hydrogen is a really future uh, is a really great fuel source for going into space. You can have a lot of it, which is obviously something that you you want the most of when you're sending people to the moon or or anywhere else into space. Uh, having fuel is really really important. You know, obviously it being the lightest. Uh, the, the smallest uh, element that we're aware of that also makes it extremely light. So you could have all this extra fuel. It's, it's, it's great. But if we don't have a new way of dealing with liquid hydrogen, and if we're talking about 32 years later, my God, we're still dealing with the same problems. You know, the space shuttle program existed for another 21 years after this. And so the question is, was that knowledge lost? Did we ever get past the point where these seals have gotten better? I mean, NASA's incentive. Well, let's start with SpaceX, actually. I think it's easier to start with SpaceX. SpaceX's incentive is to make life interplanetary. There are young engineers who want to change the world and pave a path for life to be interplanetary and to do things that nobody's thought of and to and to make a real mark on the space industry that's a strong incentive that that brings out some of the best of the young talent that's out there and not just young people who have worked in the industry work maybe worked at NASA or any of the other space contractors and they were tired of the way that things were done or they wanted to try something new and SpaceX is there for that so you could have a whole new rebirth of a career doing new and interesting things that's powerful as an incentive for the human beings behind SpaceX which they've gotten to the point where since Artemis 1 started, there have been three Falcon 9 launches on both the East Coast and the West Coast. One on the West Coast, two on the East Coast so far. And so they're averaging six, almost seven days between launches, and they're definitely going to ramp up next year. That's that's Elon. China actually just launched uh, two launches uh, back to back, you know, this is, it's not like it's impossible. It's complicated, but if you can figure out the complexity, you can do a lot of amazing stuff. What you're watching me on is a complex thing. The phone, the smartphone, the computer, the internet, complicated. But if you figure it out, look how much it enables us to do. So to say that space is hard is almost a cop-out because we all know that it's really just complicated. And that is that is difficult in itself. But we can't just say that space is hard because if we do figure it out, we can make it routine. And by saying it's hard, it, it cuts out that ability to progress and, and evolve. Because that means it's inherently something that we shouldn't be doing, right? So just wait, right? It's, it's, 
it's not a great optic. So NASA's incentives, especially this SLS program and Orion and Artemis, it's to bring the U.S.'s ability to go back to the moon, redoing something we did before, which was arguably the, one of the greatest feats that NASA accomplished. It is, their, it is their ethos. It's their myth. It's their legend. It's not their myth. It's their legend. It's, it's what they did that gives the impressiveness behind the name NASA and this almost holy aura that people put on the engineers that work there. They're just human beings. But that's the, that's the, that's the implication. And so the incentive is that you have to uphold NASA's honor and legacy. And that is a much, much different place to come at rocket science and troubleshooting a mission like this. You're, in a, you're always playing defense. You're always on the other side trying to make sure that you don't mess up. And also the image of the RS-25, the space shuttles, where two of the of the worst disasters that has happened to the space program that, that almost killed NASA as a program before, where we lost human beings. That is their incentive, is to, sur- is to survive, and their win is to, to merely uphold the legacy and, and, and to keep the NASA name strong. SpaceX has a lot easier job with that incentive structure of trying to do something new and, and, and different because there's an understanding that you're going to fail the entire way there. There's the saying, if it was easy, anyone else would do it, right? And maybe that's the, the right way to say that, is that space is not easy. It's not that it's hard. It's that space is not easy, and it's complicated. And so what I would recommend... Uh, as we close out this episode, is to check out a, a book. There's a great audio book, too, uh, by, called Escaping Gravity by Lori Garver, who was the deputy NASA administrator with Administrator Charles Bolden during the Obama administration and is a huge, huge key force behind why we have two options now for the moon and Mars, which is the space launch system, the Artemis program, which, if I'm not mistaken, was named after Lori Gar- uh, named by Lori Garver, or at least recommended, and it caught on. But also, she helped open up the doors to more private competition, like Jeff Bezos and. Elon Musk, so that those private companies could take on the cost, which is such a difficult thing for NASA to do as a government organization that has to base its budget around what is basically acceptable by politicians. And the SLS is a part of that 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 work, right? Um, a lot of it is to keep a lot of jobs by contractors around the country, right, that were working on the space shuttle. That whole workforce that had been in there since, you know, the the beginning of the space shuttle program, late 70s, early 80s, until 2011. And so that's a, again, the incentive program is a defensive posture, not something that was what Apollo was. Apollo was not a defensive posture. Apollo was an offensive posture. It was, we need to get to the moon because if we don't do it, the Russians will do it first. And that space race was clearly on a, an offensive uh, scientific endeavor. And what NASA has to do moving forward here for Artemis One is they need to learn a lot very, very quickly. They need to understand the RS-25s to a level that is comparable to people that worked there for 30 years. They need to do this, you know, from now until October, right? 
And maybe in October, the temperature differences in Florida will be just enough from the atmospheric side to the liquid cryogenic side of the hydrogen going in so that those seals on the outside are not experiencing so much heat that they're actually able to seal a little bit more when they bring them up the temperature. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the, uh, the lack of communicating how difficult liquid hydrogen is and the kind of assumption that they know what's going on because they, they didn't know enough to fix it. Right. So I, I think there's a, I love what flight director Charlie Blackwell Thompson is providing for the team because this team needs to grow. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like to be in her position, Mike Serfin's position, Jim Free's position, where you're leading these teams and you, you have to bring them to, to travel a path that's going to be extremely difficult and you need to be the experts you need to portray that you're knowing things, but you also, that you know what you're doing, but you also need to provide information to the public. I mean, imagine any of us with a day job, if you had to go in front of the press and explain yourself every single time something messed up, that would suck. <laughs> that would be terrible. That would be really hard on a person when you already have the difficulty, the the complexity of rocket science and going to space. So I, I really love what Charlie Blackwell Thompson has brought, and I, I've heard the entire leadership team say it, the art of the possible. And that is much more aligned as a mindset with what SpaceX is doing and how they're seeing success. And, and it, it takes you out of a defensive posture of, well, we should know what we're doing because you're so theory-heavy and, and you've learned all the science, but you've never actually put a rocket on the pad to figure it out. You could approach that if you weren't thinking about the art of the possible. You would be thinking, uh, you know, this should work. Why isn't it working? Where, at least with the art of the possible, you can go, all right, it's not working. What are our steps? That's why I, I liked, as much as it was, again, frustrating on that Saturday to see the scrub, I liked that Charlie Blackwell Thompson gave the team the time, even though everything said, based on everything they've learned before, that they've done everything that they know of to troubleshoot. She gave them time to work the problem. And their challenge is that they have to learn extremely quickly. And as the, as the third bullet here in Philip Weber's thing says, test as you fly Unfortunately, with the defensive posture that NASA has, because they cannot foolishly blow up this rocket, because that could very well be the end of the program. There is no room, there is no margin for NASA to make a foolish move and destroy the rocket and the spacecraft on a whim, on a guess. So they are in a much more challenging position now because they need to do what SpaceX does with a methodology that isn't SpaceX's. They only get so many launch attempts. This launch window is extremely, extremely complicated. That's why we're going from September 6th here, September 4th or 3rd when it's scrubbed, to the middle of October because of the complexity of that window. And obviously everything that's going on at the pads now, Cape, Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral is is filled with space activity, and it's only going to get busier. So this is all to say we wish NASA all the best with their next step. Again, it was very, very frustrating, so frustrating that I went to Florida, and it scrubbed twice, and we even lost launch opportunities, right? There were there were plenty of launch opportunities, three from when I went down there, and we only got two. And both of those scrubs were due to things that seemingly were understood but not expected or at least were the unfortunate thing that happened. And you kind of just see from the NASA team that they're like, yeah, this is what happens. And it's something to think about when you're putting together a space program and a team and the next, whatever might come next for NASA, right? Is it worth doing the thing we've done before because we know it? Or is it worth 
finding a team that's scrappy, willing to change things up and do something completely new because that gives them the room to fail and learn quickly. That's the SpaceX way. And that's the thing to go about here in our lives, too, if we're going to take anything away from this and apply it to our own lives. It's that more opportunities to fly, more opportunities to get on the launch pad, more opportunities to do whatever it is that you're trying to do is going to give you the most opportunity to learn and grow and eventually succeed. If you're always looking to hit the grand slam, to use a baseball analogy, you're going to strike out a lot. But if you take what you're given, you could pop one over the infield, get a single or a double, and get on base. Keep the game moving. That's what SpaceX is doing. Again, they launched three times in the time that I was down there when Artemis scrubbed twice. Imagine if Artemis was able to do this more and more often. Imagine if NASA was more uh, hard-nosed on making sure that people knew that they weren't ready, that, that, you know, if they went about the approach instead of saying, this is a, we're going to go for Artemis 1, it's a test flight, which means, oh, it's a test, it means it could happen, it could not happen, but then letting the press without hitting them over the head and when they said, we're going to the moon, this is, this is it, we're going to do it. You've now set up the public for this huge disappointment and a misunderstanding and to shrug it off as if it's, it's human nature, as NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said, and that they were just excited and it is what it is, but we've done everything we could do. I, I don't, I, that is a defensive posture. That is not an offensive posture. I, and if they were critical about that, I did not see that. And look, I'm I'm among the best of them online, right? I'm with the best of them. I'm not saying I'm the best here, but I am posting on a regular basis. I'm seeing the other space communicators post on the regular. We didn't get messages from NASA saying, hey, you better be careful, it may not launch. So to say that everything was done is, I don't think, in my opinion, the proper way to approach it. But the good thing from a human perspective it does look like the NASA team is fighting for themselves, fighting for their team. They're, they know that this is a historic problem and eventually they will get through it. But to act that way towards the press and the media and the public, it puts, it puts NASA in a position where they look elitist instead of explaining and educating. That's why I was so glad that Jim Free mentioned the summer of hydrogen. I was able to look it up and, and get an understanding, but that only happened after they were basically beat over the head with six, seven questions about liquid hydrogen and leaks. They also need to do a better job of educating us with all the things that they know. And I, I understand that there's a lot of complexity, but this is really important for the support that's needed behind this rocket because the reality is that and I, I say this fully hoping and wishing that the NASA team, that SLS, launches. And that it gets to do Artemis 1, 2, and 3. Maybe even up to 5. But if they have other issues, because again, they have another 40 minutes to get down a countdown that they have to go through with the rocket on the pad. They need to make sure that they figure this out and the the challenge that they have to go through another 40 minutes of all the things that they haven't seen if you approach it with hey guys this is a this is a brand new rocket yes it has space shuttle engines but we're learning the intricacies of all of this if they approached it that way they have a much better shot but if they have even more challenges getting down to T minus four, T T zero, launch, light those candles. They, if if they're unable to do that and they face more challenges, the SpaceX's Starship has two pads 
being developed right now. One in Florida that we saw while we were down there. One in Boca Chica, Texas that is active and has had partial uh, clearance to to continue things and to continue their test, their first sub, you know, orbital flight. Starship is already the human landing system for Artemis two and three. Really, is when it's going to have humans on board. The Starship can do this entire Artemis mission by itself, which puts the SLS in a place where it's in a difficult position because it was supposed to fly in 2016. And in 2016, a non-reusable rocket that used the space shuttle engines was a very valuable thing. It was like, all right, you know, long live space shuttle. We can, we can bring it back. We can use technology that we've flight proven before and that we've seen before. But in 2022, flight reusability is where the entire industry is going. And the idea of resurrecting old RS-25 engines or revamping and changing the RS-25 engine, that's, that's where we start getting into a squirrely area of how much more money are we going to put into this program. And I say this with love, again, to any of the NASA engineers that have worked on this mission in the past for Space Launch System, Lockheed Martin for the Orion capsule. I say this with love, but there... We are, enter- we are in the space conundrum right now. The world is not in a great place. We have in Mississippi, they don't have any clean water for the near future because their plant is down. We've just been through a pandemic. The economy, people that have lost their jobs during the pandemic still don't have jobs. We have a war in Ukraine. This is the time just like in the early space race for Apollo. Again, that Artemis mirrors Apollo in so many different ways. The space conundrum becomes, when there is big space progress, there seems to be a lot of issues, hardship on Earth for humans. SLS is an expensive program. And when the inevitable push comes back for why are we spending money going to the moon? Taxpayer money, when it could be going to other people here on the planet, how are you going to answer that question? When Starship, funded by a private space company that's launching their Starlink satellites to help fund all the research that goes into Starship, that's launching on their own rockets, how do you compete and answer the question of why you should keep paying that money. And, I, and again, I'm not saying they should stop funding it. But you're going to have to answer that question. And I'm sure I will at some point. That's why I bring this up so much, because I'm practicing. <laughs> at some point, the space conundrum will come back and ask. The people will ask, why are we doing this? When the world is in such a sad state. When the country is in such a bad state. This winter, I mean, look what's happening in the UK with with. The, the cost of energy rising there in Colorado. There was recently um, smart devices where apparently uh, anyone with smart home devices controlling the AC on their houses, their ACs were limited because of the, the power issues that they're having. This is the time that they need to get this right. So they're even under more pressure as the NASA team. I think... I think that Charlie Blackwell Thompson and the team, Mike Serafin, Jim Free, all those folks get together as a team, almost like a family unit, and really, really learn fast. You have to, because you have less reps than most people do. So think outside the box. Go into the past. Learn the RS-25 rockets. Learn the history of Space Shuttle. And get in there so that you can figure this out and be vigilant about looking forward about what the next problem could be and what you need to solve around. Get your minds right. Get ready for the challenge. And I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. I'm just speaking from the outside in, and I I do wish nothing but the best for the NASA team. But I wanted to contextualize how difficult and how much of a challenge the approach is to 
rocket science and space. Space is complex. Space is complicated, but it's not hard. And depending on which path you choose, choose your own scientific adventure, you have your different methods. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> There's a lot of space progress happening. Uh, this has been a long episode, uh, so thanks for uh, hanging in there. I felt like a lot to say after having two scrubs. I feel like that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so uh, I, I hope you guys have a great week. We'll be back next week for another episode of Today in Space. Uh, we'll be talking to some more people here as we turn into fall, but it's been a great summer. Hope you have had a good summer as well. Um, as always, you can help support us this easiest simplest thing the free thing that you can do is to subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening or watching us whether that's apple Podcasts, spotify youtube subscribe and make sure that you're following us uh, that gets into the algorithm it shows more people that you're interested in the show and it helps us get more out there we've already seen some more subscriptions on youtube and uh, our downloads are growing, so thank you, thank you so much for everyone that does that. And of course, if you want to help support the podcast in other ways, we have our AG3D Printing Lab, where we use 3D printing to bring our own ideas into reality. We have our 3D Printing Lab, where we are working on our design for our James Webb Space Telescope, which is very exciting. That'll be available on our Etsy store at ag3dprinting.etsy.com very, very soon. Um, we also have Plenty of products on there, just like our James Webb Space Telescope coaster, which you can pick up for $12. And there's much, much more to come in that perspective. And, and if you just have 3D printing uh, needs, you need something 3D printed, you have a small project, or you're trying to develop a product because you're trying to start a business, or just something for around the house, maybe it's a gift for somebody, go to ag3d-printing.com. You can get a free quote from us, and we'll point you in the right direction. We'll let you know if we can help. And we can go from anything from onesie twosies, one parts, two parts, to ramping up to do small production where we can do injection molding or some way to help get your products out there so you can help uh, start a business just like we helped Snapcaller with their early designs. Um, and now they are selling product, and they're and they're growing their business at the same time. They were able to do that because – they tested as they flew. We got different models out there so they could see it in person. They they weren't just hypothetical and theoretical. It was, oh, okay, I didn't even think of that because I didn't see it until I used it. That's the beauty of 3D printing. And again, why we're so hard against this mentality of, of perfectionism. Space can never be perfect. You can only be as good as your answers to the complexity of space. So in the complexities of making things, 3D printing is an extremely valuative, valuable, iterative tool to go from zero to 100, uh, or I should say from zero to 92%, so that way you can tweak the extra 5 2% uh, instead of, as I would say we're trying to do with the Space Launch System, go from zero to 97%. Uh, there's you can do a lot more from going to zero to ninety two uh, in my opinion, and you can always tweak and make it better. Just get to the point what is what is the the lowest bar that you can get to where you can build up to be as good as possible. Um, if you wait to get that full ninety seven percent you know on that first go that that's a difficult route and that's gonna challenge you just like we're seeing with the SLS so that's one way you can support us. And that's it, folks. Have a great week. Spread love and spread science. And we hope you have a great rest of your week. Uh, here's coming into fall. I'm looking forward to it here in New England. It's beautiful this time of year. And I'm going to pick a tree this year and try and watch it every day. Because that's one of the, my favorite things to do during the fall is to watch a specific tree change day to day. Because it, it happens quicker than you expect it's slow but it's also fast and you if you don't watch it every day i've learned uh growing up here is that you all of a sudden the trees have turned and you've you you have some leaf peeping that you can do but it's cool to really watch a tree transform into fall uh, and into the winter that's it folks that's all i've got this week uh i'm alex Giofanis, your space podcast host from the east coast 
Wishing you a great rest of your week. Live long and prosper. Spread love and spread science. And we'll see you on the next episode of Today in Space. See ya.